Welcome to The Workplace, where we're hot on the trail of what makes great workplace cultures tick and what we can all do to make the ones we work in better. I'm Andrew Scarcell. This episode, we'll be talking with Melissa Arno about team-based leadership and decision-making in high-risk environments. Join us after the interview for Tangible Takeaways, where we'll talk about the ideas and actions we can take with us and implement in our own workplace cultures. Melissa Arno is the first American woman to successfully summit and descend Mount Everest without supplemental oxygen, and is second only to the infamous Lakpa Sherpa in total summits, with a whopping six. As a fiercely determined mountaineer, guide, and educator, Melissa has devoted her life to learning from the mountains and sharing her experience and insights with others. She's also a co-founder of the Juniper Fund, which provides financial support to families of local workers who die in the mountains of Nepal. Melissa was interviewed by our very own Katie Clifford. Hi, Katie. Welcome back to The Workplace. Hi, Andrew. I'm so happy to be here. I gotta say, out of all the guests lined up for season two... I was maybe the most starstruck by Melissa. I don't know how you felt, but... There was a quality about her that was really different. I feel like she she had a very open ability to sort of draw us into her world that I thought was so fun. I just, I could have talked to her for two more hours. And in fact, I did follow her out of the room and we continued to talk about her charity for about another 45 minutes before just she spoke. followed her around like a little yeah. puppy dog. Like a little, like a little puppy, just so stoked. I, I understand it though, honestly, as a, as a fellow a mountain enthusiast, I was just blown away by how thoughtful she was about the um, her experiences and how how it relates to you know all aspects of life. It was um, it was pretty thrilling. Yeah, well, and you think about the things that she's done. I mean, summiting Everest. In your mind, you think about sort of like these big dudes, burly dudes. That's who gets to the top of Mount Everest, and here she is, this like really cute, sweet mom who just is amazing. And I think that that probably lent a little bit of that mystical quality to her. It's just like, I cannot believe you were able to do this thing that is unreachable for most of us. And here you are. She's a total badass. 100%. Well, I'm super excited. Let's, uh, let's get to it. I wanted to kind of start off, in my career, I've worked a lot with athletes in quote-unquote extreme sports. And for those inside the industry, it's easy to sort of understand what it is that you guys do. But I think sometimes the world at large sees climbing Mount Everest, these big, big undertakings, these risky undertakings as you're some kind of adrenaline junkie, there's something missing in your brain, you, you know, you're taking these risks and is it really worth it? What do we as normal humans get wrong about risk? And what? how do you see that? And how does it play into your life? And, and how is it not what we think it is? 
Well, a couple of things right off the bat. I think, you know, climbing big mountains, high altitude climbing specifically, is the exact opposite of an adrenaline sport. It's really like a meditation. And my adrenaline is only pumping when something's going very wrong. And that is part of being in nature in some of the wildest places, is you expose yourself to the possibility that things can go wrong, which is the risk that you're talking about. And I work as a professional mountain guide. So my job, distilled down, is a professional risk manager. And what I do is evaluate every situation, try to see all the things that could go wrong. Any of the ones that I can manage, I try to manage before they happen. And then I decide, can I accept the remaining things? Is the risk worth it? And so I think that's a big part of managing risk. It's not making risk go away. It's looking it in the eye, acknowledging that it's there, and saying, is this worth it? And so I think that's sort of the bigger answer is, why do risky things? And I think for me in my life, I've had to try to make choices that are aligned with my values. And if I'm moving towards my values, I will take some risks. And I will put myself out there if it's something that is aligned with my values. If it's something that is for validation, I'm not going to take a risk. It's not worth it. It's not worth risking my life or somebody else's life. And I've seen the worst consequences. You know, I've worked in the mountains long enough. And I worked as a paramedic on an ambulance. And so I've seen all of the things that can go wrong by chance and by mistake. And so I'm just very appreciative of the, the value of um, the decisions we make and the ones that we don't. So preparation is a huge piece of your job and making sure that you're making good decisions. Preparation is, I think, one of the most understated parts of everything that we do. It's all of the planning. It's the, it's the unsexy part of climbing big mountains for sure. It's the planning. It's the training. It's the trying to get good at your craft, trying to get better than you'll ever think you'll need to be. And that really pays dividends back in the long run. You have summited Mount Everest six times. Is that right? Correct. Yeah, six times. And you were the first American woman to do it without oxygen. Yep, exactly. So what was it about Everest that attracted you? There are mountains all over the world. There's all kinds of things you could do. What is it about Everest specifically? Well, I work as a professional mountain guide. I started working as a guide on Mount Rainier in Washington State, and I quickly sort of moved up the ranks to being a lead guide and then getting the opportunity to work internationally. And after just three years of guiding, I had a client approach me about coming with him on a trip to Everest as an assistant guide. And it took sort of a lot of figuring stuff out. I said no initially because I didn't feel like I was experienced enough. But ultimately, I decided that it was a great opportunity for mentorship, and I wanted to go and be in the biggest mountains in the world, of course. I think if you are a mountain person, getting the opportunity to see, A, the biggest mountain in the world, but B, such a sacred place is so important. And so I had the opportunity to guide on Everest and was lucky enough to get to the summit my first time with my entire team and and safely descend. And I had this question of, can I do this without the assistance of supplemental oxygen? Well, not when I'm guiding, because my primary job is to take care of my clients, but maybe pursuing it personally. And so I started what became an eight-year journey of trying to answer that question. And I tried multiple times and actually failed for various different reasons. And in that process, I got to know myself better. I got to know the mountain better. And I really reached a necessary level of understanding for me to be able to achieve that goal. So those failures actually contributed to the ultimate success. I think the failures were more vital than any successes I had. I summited five times, sometimes guiding clients, sometimes on personal trips where I tried to climb without oxygen and ended up using it. And I can say for sure that when I didn't succeed in my goal, I 
learned so much. And it's a super cliche to say that. And it's sort of like a nice cozy blanket to put around failure to be like, oh, it's okay because I learned a lot. It still is horrible. It still feels awful. And I think it really takes a lot to sort of orient yourself towards what you're doing and why you're doing it to make sure that you are doing it for the right reasons. Because that kind of failure again and again can really reroute you. It can knock you down and deter you, or it can teach you. And I chose the latter. What were sort of the steps or what went through your mind that allowed you to then turn around and do it anyway? You know, I think I've, I've alluded to this a couple times, but knowing that I was making a choice to pursue curiosity was what was so important to me. Curiosity is one of my core values. It's one of the biggest motivators of why I do almost everything in life. And it became not about trying to succeed and not about trying to prove something and not about trying to keep my sponsorship or make more money or do anything else. It became about this question, can I do this? And wanting the answer and being okay with the answer being no if I had a true chance to try. But in those failures, I had felt like for various reasons, I never gave it 100%. And it's really tricky to give 100% in the mountains because that leaves 0% error. And to climb Everest without supplemental oxygen takes 100%. So you have to do things in a way that I actually personally don't normally feel comfortable doing things. I like to, you know, give about 10% and have a 90% safety margin. That's how I like to function. It's how I mostly function. I'm really well known as like an extremely conservative climber and guide. And nobody's ever going to talk about like the bold routes that I climbed or anything like that. But that's something that I value. It's something that feels important. And so it was a really categoric shift for me to change my mind and put myself all in on something and know that I had no room for error and know that I was doing it because it was one of my values. I was pursuing this question. I think that the point that you make about it being rooted in your values Mm -hmm. is really important because to your point, it could have been about sponsorship. It could have been about, oh, I really want the accolades. But I don't know that that would have actually pushed you past the failure. You know, it's interesting because I had this really tortured time where I was going to go back to Everest again for my last time to try without oxygen. And I really wanted to be sure that I was doing this for, you know, I I say the right reasons, but my right reasons. And so I made a decision actually to not tell my family. I didn't tell my sponsors and I actually lied to the media. And I said that I was doing another project. I was just working with one of my mentees and I was going to be in Nepal, but I wasn't climbing Everest. And then I went to the other side, to the Chinese side or Tibetan side of Everest, and where there was a little bit more low-key situation, and I could fly under the radar a little bit more. And of course, when I arrived, like everybody knew I was there. The cat was sort of out of the bag that I was on Everest. But, but I just wanted to be sure that I wasn't seeking the approval. I wasn't seeking the likes on social media. And I shut it all down during that time. And I just really went into this place where I was really clear that if I was going to risk my life, it had to be for something bigger than validation. That is just not worth risking your life for. So you have mentioned a couple times that you also work as a guide. Mm -hmm. Um, So that is a huge responsibility to have, because you don't just have people's good times or their, even their livelihood, you have their life in your hands. So that's a huge responsibility. Obviously, most of us don't have those kind of high stakes, but mm-hmm. we do have ourselves in in, uh, in times where we are responsible for other people. So you talked um, in something that I saw about you were there in 2015 when the earthquake happened, and you were with a team. Mm-hmm. So how did that change how you behaved and reacted as if, in contrast to what it would have been like had you been alone? Yeah. 
You know, it's interesting because I think part of being a guide and this notion that I work in this really high-risk environment where I'm responsible for people's lives, I take that as seriously as I take the responsibility of being, you know, accountable for their experience as well. And so, you know, it's something we can all relate to. We're sometimes leaders of other people's experience. And I take that just as seriously as I do being responsible for people's lives. But, you know, when the earthquake happened in 2015, I was with a small climbing team and we were actually working on a documentary for Glamour magazine and filming it. And suddenly I just realized that I had to make the best decisions for my team. And if I had been alone, I think I would have gone immediately back into what was a really volatile zone where there was still active aftershocks happening at Everspace Camp and there was a lot of injuries. And my innate desire and my background in medicine made me want to help. But I recognized quite quickly that it wasn't going to be the best decision for my team. Everyone on my team wasn't capable of seeing that sort of carnage and being able to continue their life unharmed from that. And I just decided that we were in a safe spot. We were down a little bit lower in a village below Everest Base Camp. We'd been climbing another peak that morning, actually, and came down when the earthquake happened. And I decided to sort of stay where I knew we were safe. I knew we could be stable for a few days. I knew we would have food and um, we'd have some communication. And that was really hard. It was the beginning of a couple of really tortured leadership decisions where I was having to make decisions for other people in a way that I'm not used to doing. Because honestly, most of my guiding, because I do make such conservative decisions, I never get faced with like that really hard decision where I'm choosing the thing that will either result in catastrophe or success or just you know, survival. And so that felt like one of those times where every decision had so much weight to it. Do you ever think back on that time and wish you'd made different decisions? Do you feel confident about what happened? That time was <laughs> so interesting. I had some challenging uh, group dynamics going on in my team anyway outside of the earthquake. And I just think that I made the best decisions possible. And it's sort of one of the tools that I used how to make decisions in a really challenging environment, especially when you have to make decisions very quickly, is that I try to stop, observe everything around me, take in all the data that I can as quickly as I can, and think, what is the next right step? And the right step is something that, again, moves me towards my end goal or, you know, if I'm thinking big picture, towards my values. And that's all you have to do. And you can keep doing little micro steps of that where you stop, look around, take in all the information because life is dynamic. The information changes continuously and then make the next right step. And it's okay if you went left, 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 and then you go, oh, got to go right a little bit and correct. And that just allows you, I think, the freedom to be able to not look back at your decisions and say, oh my gosh, I could have made so much better. And there's a bazillion decisions, like especially all my past relationships probably that I'm like, I could have made better decisions. I didn't take the next best right step. But in that time, I think I actually was like making the best right step in a really micro sense. Yeah, I feel like that's a great way to to sort of piece it out. And that way you're also not putting this pressure on yourself to know how it's going to end in the middle, which you can't actually do. Mm -mm. Yeah, (laughs) It's an impossible thing. So how do you prepare for the mental piece of going to Everest? Like how, obviously there's a ton of gear to put together and all of that, but what do you do to prepare yourself mentally for hitting that mountain? I think one of the things that people don't understand about big mountain climbing and Everest climbing is that um, there's a tremendous amount of downtime. You actually just have to be sitting around doing nothing for long periods of time while you wait out weather, while your body adjusts to the altitude, while you wait for the conditions to be just right and the, the route to be in. And so... 
I think that's one thing is just like I have a practice of just being okay being super slothy and just not doing anything and like hardcore chilling. And so that's a practice. But I think the other thing is somebody early on in my climbing career said, um, you don't have to practice suffering. It's okay. And I actually totally disagree. I think you do have to practice suffering. And I think you need to get as close to the slippery space between discomfort and danger as you can so you can clearly understand when you're in it in real life. And so what I do to make myself as uncomfortable as possible as mental training, it sounds like physical training, but it's actually mental training. I do a, a really robust physical training program where I hike uphill 3,000 feet with a 50-pound pack on, hike back downhill, go to the gym, do high-intensity um, interval training, and then do like long steady-state cardio for like an hour and then I'll also train for a marathon that I'll do right before I leave for my Everest expedition. And the marathon training is the mental training. It's not physical at all. It's the fact that I just really hate running, like, more than almost anything. <laughs> and I get zero uh, credit from it. Nobody is impressed when I run anywhere. I don't, like, personally get any value from it. My fitness doesn't, like, notably improve from that running. But every single time that I run 16 miles or, you know, if I did a ultra marathon right before I left for my 2016 climb and I ran 31 miles and I was like, if I can do this thing that I hate so much and I get nothing from and it's hard – then I can do something that I love that's hard. And so I just use that tool of like, remember that day when I had like water filling my shoes and sloshing and it was like 37 degrees and raining and I kept going and I still ran. Like that's the mental tool that I use to be able to persevere when things are hard. Because I remember I'm rooting myself into my values and I'm rooting myself into something I actually do love. And thankfully I'm not running. <laughs> <laughs> thankfully, yeah. this is just mountain climbing, totally. not mountain running. Walking uphill slowly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, no, that's a really cool tool. I think one of the, the best things about physical challenges is that they have a lot of um, applicability to our regular life, right? You can pull mm -hmm. that over. How has mountain climbing and what you've done on the mountains kind of bled over into your, your regular life? I think the two most notable ways that it has come into my regular life, everyday life, is that I'm a super type A person. I like to be in control of things and I like to manage things. And living a life in the mountains just completely teaches you how frequently you are out of control of things. And it softens that side of you in a way because you learn to be a little bit reactive and be able to continue to try to make good decisions, but know that you don't have to, like you said before, have all the answers. You don't have to solve the equation. You just have to be present. And I think that's the other thing that it's really taught me in my life is how to uh, I, I imagine if I do a visual of what it is, it's that we live in a world where we sort of look directly in front of us. And I think being in the mountains has taught me to look 360 degrees all around me, above and below, and be as present as I can to that whole sphere that is constantly around us. And that is just a really, like, incredibly wonderful way to live. It's just enriching. You know, every single space you go into, if you take it in from all of the angles, it's just so much richer. But when you're taking um, a team up a mountain, you're going to spend a lot of time with those people. So it's almost like you're having to create a little culture uh, with that team, right? Mm -hmm. Because you're going to be spending a lot of time and there needs to be. What do you do to sort of establish, like, how do, how do you do that? How do you make sure this is going to be a good experience for all of you from an interpersonal way? I think one of the ways that I try to foster trust in my team and foster uh, openness and ability for us to be able to collaborate on a single goal together is to be really vulnerable from the get-go. So my clients that I travel with, 
they know my whole life story. And it's, you know, I try to be as open as I can and be as honest as I can about my successes, my failures, my messy parts, my clean parts, and just really show them every part of me so that maybe they're a little bit less afraid to show me every part of them. And then I'm really, really observant. And I try to tune into the ways that they're capable of being vulnerable and really lean into those things. And I quickly can understand, like, this person does best when they're, you know, I I joke that it's like everybody has like a cuddle or a kick motivation. And it's like, I can quickly understand, like, do they need hugs and like affirmation or do they need like sternness and like a kick, you know? And and that's a really important part of our dynamic. But I think it, it starts with my own vulnerability and trying to take myself off of the pedestal of being the leader, because I think so often you look at the leader like, oh my gosh, they're, they have it all figured out and it's all perfect and it's they have what you want maybe in a lot of cases. And I, I just try to relate to them on a level that says like, you know, if we flip this rope around, you're the leader and that can happen instantaneously. And I love that dynamic. That's great. I think you actually just in a nutshell described how modern leadership is heading yeah. from a person 100%. in charge who knows everything yeah. to, hey, team-based <laughs> leadership. Yeah, it's so yeah. wonderful. Yeah, is that, I'm excited for that. Is that something that you have seen change on the mount in, in terms of your time? Yeah, I have. World? I've seen it change. And it's interesting because I know I've influenced it in my own little sphere. And what I've noticed is as I've gained more experience, I loosen the reins a little bit. And I even like to like give them up completely. And I just see the rewards that others get from getting to be a leader in a challenging situation, even if they're not, you know, experienced enough or at the right place to permanently lead. I think that it just gives everybody so much respect and they respect my leadership more if they have the chance to lead. And I respect them just remembering that, um, you know, I think it's so interesting when you are a leader, you can sometimes forget that there's these other humans you're leading are not just completely inept in their lives. Like my clients are all really skilled and competent individuals at something, just maybe not what I'm doing with them. And so it just reminds me when I let them lead and, and I'm the follower that like, you know, we're just humans and there's a lot to that story. What was the last book or article you read that really kind of stuck with you or social media post or anything you read? Oh, that's interesting. That really stuck with me. Something that I read, I feel like I'm like constantly reading and so my brain is just like constantly like digesting and spitting things back out. Um, I have been sort of revisiting this book from that I read when I was first sort of venturing into the world as an adult and it's um it's called Something More and it's it's an old sort of like self-helpy book that's um, called Excavating Your Authentic Self and I was actually looking in at it for something to share with a friend and it just reminded me how grateful I guess I am that I read that book when I was like 17 years old and that I had the notion of an authentic self because that's been on my mind a lot like who are we authentically yeah, yeah, that's great. It's a we could have spend another whole podcast on that. Oh my gosh! Yeah, we could spend our life on that. I feel like we really yeah. could. Um, so, in one word, how would you describe your ideal workplace culture? Collaborative. That's yeah. great. Yeah, yeah. Now, and that really speaks to how you lead is in a collaborative way. What is a technology we should use more, and what's a technology we should use less? Well, I mean, I'm a little bit biased here because I've been sort of in the early phases of development with Microsoft um, working with their uh, Teams app, and it's just such an amazing communication tool. And I think that it doesn't have to be that, but ways in which we can truly connect in more than just uh, auditorily or visually, but really connect and, and have a tool to collaborate, I think 
that's technology I want to lean all the way into. And I work globally. Like, I have partners around the world, so I need to be able to lean in that way. And then I think the the less side is just um, the, I mean, I don't know if this isn't a specific thing, but, like, I've been really working on docking my phone at my house so that when I am with my family, I'm really totally present. And so I think it's to stop all the technology, right, to just be doing the thing you're doing when you're doing it. Who are some of your heroes? You must have some... Uh, some people that you admire and wanted to sort of pe- follow in the pe- footsteps of. Yeah, I think it's twofold. I think like a historic hero of mine is Beryl Markham. She was one of the, she was the first female bush pilot flying in Africa. And she just had an amazing story. And she was just a pioneer in so many ways, the way that she thought. And she maybe had like a love affair with Hemingway. And she has that kind of a twisted history. But it's like just this beautiful story of a really powerful woman ahead of her time. And uh, so that's a wonderful book is West with the Night. If you want a good read, that's the her stories of being a bush pilot in Africa in the first earliest days of that. And then I think the other thing is the person or people I look up to, it's sort of a whole genre, is people that are like my clients and the um, young women who I mentor. And I think that I look up to them because I aspire to be able to be as vulnerable as so often my clients and my mentees are to say, I don't know how to do this thing and I want to learn from you who do. And I'm not always very good at that. And so they, that has like long standing been my sort of um, hero in life is the person who can just like stand there and say, I don't know how to do this. Will you teach me? Because that's just not my strong suit. And so I'm always like looking at people that can do that with great admiration. That is awesome. Well, we need to have teachers too if we're going to have people who need to be taught. So, <laughs> so true. There's a space All for the everyone. Things. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, well, you've been a delight to talk to, Melissa. Thank you so much yeah. for joining us today. I feel like we learned a lot of really cool stuff and thanks for making some time. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Now it's time for Tangible Takeaways, where we take big ideas high into the Himalayas in search of a hidden mountain dojo filled with faceless ninjas, where they're put through a series of increasingly difficult tests until they discover how to overcome their fears and become the hero Gotham deserves, but not the one it needs right now. The first, is that people respect their leaders more if they're given opportunities to lead. Team-based leadership not only fosters trust and encourages vulnerability, it gives leaders much-needed feedback on how individual team members respond to stress and how they like to be motivated, in Melissa's words, with cuddles or with kicks. This kind of information is essential for a healthy team dynamic. Even if that team isn't roped together on the edge of a thousand-foot cliff making a push for the summit. The second is that when making decisions in a crisis, don't try to solve everything at once. Try taking micro-steps. Information changes fast when things are going sideways, so by the time you come up with a big, holistic solution, it might not be the right one anymore. By making small decisions, each one a tiny step toward your ultimate goal, you can make adjustments and corrections as you go. And you'll avoid the dreaded decision paralysis that can sit in when things get chaotic. 
The third is that in terms of cuddles or kicks, I'll take cuddles every time. Some people thrive on tough love, but I prefer soft love. The kind that says, hey, don't take it too hard. Take what you learned from this failure and come back stronger and smarter than ever. You got this, buddy. Now go back in there and do the best you can. And remember, whatever happens, we'll always love you. That's it for this episode of The Workplace. If you liked it, or even if you didn't, please rate, review, and of course, subscribe to The Workplace on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a burning question about workplace culture, or a story about why your workplace culture is the best, or worst, send it to theworkplace at octanner.com. This episode was written by yours truly, with original music and sound design by Daniel Foster Smith. The Workplace is sponsored by O.C. Tanner, the global leader in engaging workplace cultures. O.C. Tanner's Culture Cloud provides a single, modular suite of apps for influencing and improving employee experiences through recognition, career anniversaries, well-being, leadership, and more. If you want your organization to become a place where people can't wait to come to work in the morning, go to octanner.com.